Well, guys, this is a, a bit of a doozy of a passage this morning, isn't it? I'm guessing many of you in this room have probably come across this passage in Hebrews 6 before and maybe been a little confused or had a lot of questions about what in the world does this mean? I know that's been the case for me and any others I've talked to throughout the week preparing for this uh, this morning. So what I want to do is just walk through the text by asking some questions. And if you've ever really tried to study this text, it's probably going to be questions you've, you've asked either out loud or just to yourself before about what this passage really means. And so the first one I ask is, who is he talking about? Because the author essentially sets up a certain category of people. You know, we often kind of put people in categories by different things, whether that's gender or um, job or age or whatever, right? These people, these people. He kind of sets up a category of there's certain people who have done things in such a way that they're now at a point that they can't really get back into a right relationship with God through repentance. And so that's a, that's a very odd thing to say. It's a little confusing. Um, so let's walk through and look at who he's talking about. So let's get the characteristics of these people. Um, first of all, it says in verse 4, those who have once been enlightened. So they've, they've been enlightened. So in other words, they have some understanding of the things of God, the truth of the gospel. Number two, they've tasted the heavenly gift. So not only have they a little bit of understanding about Jesus, who the Lord is and the gospel, but they've experienced some of that goodness. They've, they've felt it in a way that's made an impact on their life. And number three, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've been a part of the Spirit of God at work among his people. Number four, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. So similar to number two, they've not only seen and understood and been exposed to the things of God, but they have been in some way impacted. It's not just been um, data points that they've observed, but it's been things that have had an effect on them. They've tasted these things. And then lastly, the bad thing about this is that it says these people have then fallen away from the Lord. And so if you look at any study Bible or commentary dealing with this passage, what you're going to see is kind of two possible ways we could interpret who these people were that the author is talking about. One of the possibilities is he could be talking about believers, people who were indwelt by God's Spirit, who then lost their salvation, who fell away from the faith. So there's one idea you could interpret it this way, that it's saying that there have been people who have known the Lord, have confessed their sin, have truly been justified in right standing with God, um, have the Holy Spirit within them, and then have done things in such a way that the Holy Spirit is now not in them, and they were once justified in God's sight and now aren't. Um, that is not the interpretation we would go with here at Crosspoint. One of the reasons for that is because if you look at the Bible contextually, right, look at any verse that like, well, how do we interpret this? Which way do we go here? How do we know what this means? It's always important to consider context. And very narrowly, that could mean the verse or the chapter. What else does this chapter say? What else does the book of Hebrews say, the book that it's set in? But then even more broadly, what does the whole of Scripture, the whole counsel of God teach about this idea? And I think if you were to ask that question about this, these two possible interpretations, what you would find is that you don't see this idea in Scripture that people can 
be surrendered to Jesus, be in a relationship with him, be in right standing with God, and truly be justified and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that the scripture seems to teach that once that happens, nothing can change that. And I'm not going to chase that rabbit because just for the sake of time, what I'm going to do is just give you a quick list of passages. This is not at all an exhaustive list, but just a quick handful of passages that I was just able to, to think of and find very briefly um, to talk about that. So you can take a picture of that if you want. By the way, quick side note, see that little camera in the top right of the screen? Um, that is your cue that if you're a picture taker of what's on the screen, that's the time to do it. Because I know a lot of times you'll see some points on the screen, but you don't know if it's full yet. Maybe there's more coming. That's how you know. Thank you, David Watkins, for that. It's really, really cool. Pretty soon, every church in America is going to be doing this. And David's a pioneer here. Um, but so that's one passage, in, or one, one interpretation of this passage, and kind of why we veer away from that. The the interpretation we would hold to here at Crosspoint Leadership is this, is that this would be referring to people in the church who were not Christians. And this interpretation makes a lot of sense if you, if you come back up and walk through what it says about this category of people. It makes a lot of sense when you view it this way. Think about it. That it says they've once been enlightened. They've, they've heard things about the Lord, right? That could be true of someone who, though isn't fully following Jesus, is in and among God's people, that they've heard about the goodness of God, that they've shared in the spirit, they've shared in the effects of how following God and the things of God and doing the things that he says will have a positive, helpful impact on your life. They've been among and in God's people and tasted and experienced the benefits of being among those who believe in and follow Jesus. And yet we would say the fact that they've fallen away would show that they themselves have not been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And not only do we say that we land on that interpretation because of the whole of Scripture, but even just within this passage, if you just read down to the next verse, the author gives an illustration that seems to point us in that direction. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7 says this, for the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. So in other words, imagine a field, right, and rain falls upon the field and there's someone who owns the field and they want to see good fruit, some sort of crop, some sort of harvest come from that field. It receives the seed, it receives the rain. God gives it all those things and out comes this very useful crop. That field is blessed. It's a good thing. It's doing what it's intended to do. Keep reading. Verse 8. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So in other words, if, if that field, instead of bearing good things, if it receives the same rain, the same seed, all the things that should need to bear a good, useful harvest, but instead what comes up is thorns and thistles, what would you conclude other than he's saying that field never had the right things in it to begin with, right? That it was exposed to all the same things. It'd be different if he had said an illustration where there was this field and at one time it was producing all this good fruit, then later it changed and no longer produced good fruit but bad. But instead the author seems to be indicating what we've said a minute ago, that this is not talking about people who were producing fruit because God's spirit was in them and then that changed and faded, but instead that instead of being a good field, it was a bad field that did not receive the Lord and the rain in such a way that it would bear fruit. And so one of the things I did is looking through this passage is I 
contacted some folks just that I know and trust about, hey, what do you, man, you've probably read this passage, studied this passage. What do, you, what do you think about this? One of those guys was Mark Bowder. He's a deacon here. I knew that he had um, he made comments about this passage before. And he pointed me to an article by John Piper, which I was eager to read because I'm a big fan of John Piper. He's an author, pastor, uh, theologian. And Piper had an article about this. He's an, he's an older man now. And he talked about this idea that, you know, what would it look like for that to happen, even to a pastor, if he personalizes, if I, John Piper, myself, were to five, ten years from now, fall away from the Lord, become disinterested and have contempt towards the things of God, and walk away from Jesus, what would that mean? What should people conclude about all of the books I've written, all the sermons I've preached, or what does it say about those things? And he said this, he said it would mean that you would look at him and think this, if you understood this rightly, his fidelity to his wife was a temporary passion and compliance with social pressure. His fatherhood was the outworking of his natural instincts. His preaching was driven by the love of words and crowds. His writing was a love affair with fame. And his praying was the deepest delusion of all, an attempt to get God to supply the resources of his vanity. So when you ask the question, who is he talking about here? Who are these people that could have been in and among God's people and fallen away? Again, we would say he's not talking about Christians who then became not Christian. He's talking about people who are with and among the church, but were not actually God's children. Second question I want to ask is, is restoration truly impossible for some? That's what we see in verse 6 that he says, it's impossible for those in this category to then return and, and be restored to repentance. And I think as we answer that question, the key word there is repentance. The answer would be only if they do not repent. Because what we see in Scripture in terms of the picture it paints of God as a father, as creator, as savior, is that he never stiff arms anyone who's coming to him in true repentance. That I think this passage is not saying that even if that person repents and comes back to God wholeheartedly that God will not accept them. I don't think it's saying that. I think it's what it's saying is once someone reaches this point, repentance for that person is impossible. And we're going to see that later on in Hebrews in chapter 12 when it talks about um, another Old Testament story about a guy and it says that he, he could not find repentance. Like he couldn't bring himself to come back to God. Think for a minute about the story of the prodigal son. If you don't know the story, I'll try to kind of summarize it real briefly. It's from Luke chapter 15. But Jesus tells this story of that there's this dad, and this dad has two sons. And one of his sons, the youngest, basically comes to his dad and says, hey, I know you've got a large inheritance set aside for me. I'd really not wait around for you to die before I can have that, so can I just have it now? Because that's what would typically happen, right? Once the father passes, that inheritance goes down to the children. So the son is basically telling his father, I would rather you just be dead so I can have the money, but since you're not, can I just go ahead and have it now and enjoy it while I'm young and can go do things? So the father uh, says yes, gives him his inheritance. He takes this, assumedly, a big stack of money goes off to just do whatever his heart desires, right? To just go find all the pleasures that the world has to offer. What eventually happens to this guy is he finds that those things don't bring him the satisfaction that he thought that they would. He finds himself working for a pig farmer, which for a Jew is about the worst job you could possibly imagine because pigs are so unclean and dirty. 
And so he's working for a pig farmer. He's actually eating the food that the pigs eat. And the scripture says he kind of comes to himself and goes, what am I doing? I mean, my father's servants have it better than I do. Maybe I'll go back. Maybe he'll let me be one of his servants. So he goes back, and what does the father do? The story of this great loving father sees his son coming miles down the road, drops whatever he has. This old man begins running towards his son, wraps him up in a, beer, in a big bear hug, welcomes him home, throws a party, kills the fatted calf, says, what was lost is found. My son who was gone is now returned home. Guys, that, that's the picture of God's posture towards any sinner who comes to the Lord in repentance. This passage cannot be teaching that God would stiff arm a repentant sinner. What it must be teaching is that this son, imagine if he had stayed in the world and stayed away from his father's house and instead of being sick on pig food decided that whatever he found in the world was better than what his father had to offer and he fell so in love with that that the prospect or idea of going back to his father just seemed like something he could never do because he had fallen so in love with the world that seems to be what this text is saying and let me just stop here and confess something to you I hope I don't come across as someone who's up here having gone up to the mountain, right, and received the correct interpretation of this. Now I'm bringing it here to hand it to all of you people who need me to think for you. That's not what this is. In fact, I would, I would caution you against any Bible teacher who presents himself in that way, who presents himself in such a way as like, I am the Bible answer man. I have degrees in education and studies. And so for you to really understand this, you really need me to explain it to you. Guys, that's not my heart. That's not where this is. This passage is probably just as confusing and, and troubling for me as it is for you. I don't claim to have fully grasped and wrapped it up and tied a neat little bow on top of it myself. But one thing I will say that has helped me with this text is thinking through the idea of what the intent of this warning of this category of people is. But let me tell you what it's not. When you read this text, it's clear. He's not giving us this warning that, hey, there are these certain people who could do these certain things and then they're no longer a way for them to be back in a right relationship with God. Like that's that possibility that he throws out there. I don't think it's given to us or to them in such a way that they would then use that as a filter to try to put people in categories, right? It's not so that we would look outward and go, oh, well, that guy, it looked like he was here for a while, then he did this. Oh, he must be one of these people. He must be in this category that the author of Hebrews is talking about. He doesn't give us this warning so we would look outwardly and try to find someone who fits that description. He gives us this warning so that we would apply it to ourselves, so that we would take this idea, this, this, this possibility that someone could drift so far from the Lord and fall so in love with the, the world that, that there's not a way for them to get back to God, that we would see that and go, man, I hope that's not me. And I know that could be me if I'm not careful. If we ask the question, who is this warning for? It's anyone in or among the church. For him, originally, when this was written, it was for anyone reading this letter, that they would see this warning and go, man, I, I really want to make sure that's not me. I really want to make sure I don't go down that path. And I think it's important to point out that it's not a warning that should lead us away from assurance, but towards it. I think our, our temptation is to hear this warning and think, well, how can I have assurance that I'm really in Christ? How can I have any confidence of my salvation? 
I think what we see if we keep reading in this passage and don't just stop right there at verse 8, but keep reading, is what we're going to see is that the intent of this warning is to move its readers towards assurance, not away from it. Look in verse 9. Right after saying all that, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end. Which I don't know about you, but I read that and I'm like, ah, oh, man, you, you got us all worked up for nothing, right? It's like, it's like he says, there's this warning that this could happen, but I'm sure that's not the case for you, right? And it's like, wait, what are we doing here? This guy like trying to play like emotional whiplash with us? What's going on? But then I started to think about the idea that all the time in life we issue or receive warnings that we're confident we will avoid the outcome of those warnings. I mean, think about it in the lens of parenting. It happens all the time, right? Think about the first time you take your kid to the dentist, right? And the dentist wants to kind of, you know, instill in your child the need to brush your teeth. So what does he do? Well, he pulls out the nastiest looking mouth that's ever been recorded in human history in a picture of it and say, now if you don't brush and floss every day, like I said, this is what's in store for you, right? I mean, the dentist doesn't say that thinking that like, this is probably what's going to happen to that kid. I mean, it's, it's what he's going to look like 10 years from now if he doesn't course correct. No, there's confidence that he's not going to fall into that trap, but there's still a very real possibility that he could if he does not heed these warnings. Think about the first time you leave your kids at home or let them drive or let them walk across the street to check the mail. Most people don't have to do that. My house, the mail's on the other side of the street. Bad illustration, sorry. Think about the first time you, you do that. Like you, you want your kid to be at a certain point before giving that permission. So let me throw out just a kind of a hypothetical. I grew up in a small town where we rode our bikes everywhere. Like there wasn't a single friend I had who lived in town that I couldn't get to his house on my bike in like five minutes. It took forever to walk there, but on my bike I could get there pretty quickly. So it was kind of a big deal, kind of a rite of passage in, in Panhandle, Texas, when you got to a point where your parents said, hey, yeah, you can get on your bike and go to your friend's house by yourself, right? No one with you, no one trailing behind you in the car, you know. You can just go and do that by yourself. So I want you to imagine for a second a family. Let's say the dad and the son are home. Let's say the son's name is Jonathan. Let's say Jonathan's eight, nine years old. Jonathan's never ridden his bike to his friend's house because there's a highway he has to cross on the other side of town. Dad's like, yeah, it's just kind of scary. It's kind of dangerous. And Jonathan's like, Dad, I think I'm ready. Can I ride my bike to my friend's house, my friend Adam on the other side of town? And the dad's like, yeah. He's going to get through it in his head, and finally he, he relents, and he said, Yes, son, you can, but please be careful, okay? Especially when you get to that highway, be sure and stop. Even if you don't have a stop or a yield sign, don't assume anyone sees you. It goes through all these warnings, right? So the kid takes off, right? So then the mom comes home. The mom says to the dad, Hey, where's, where's Jonathan? And the dad says, Oh, I, we talked, and I decided it was time, and I, I let him ride his bike to Adam's house, and honey, I... I don't think he's going to make it. <laughs> that would never happen, right? Like, hopefully a dad would never take that approach, right? So, but that, the dad would wait until the kid was like, he had some confidence that the kid was going to make it there, right? He wouldn't be just like rolling the dice, hoping it works out. He would have a lot of confidence, but that wouldn't negate 
the gravity of the warnings that the dad has about what could happen if that kid doesn't pay attention. And that's just one example, but in parenting, we do that all the time. We warn our kids of potential outcomes that we are confident they won't experience. But the confidence we have does not diminish the very real possibility of harm or the gravity of those warnings. And I think that's how we should interpret this text, right? That even though the author, to the people he's writing, he's confident that's not going to happen to them, that shouldn't diminish the very real sense of warning and the very real possibility of that happening. It should be how we interpret this text. That there is a very sober warning here that we should not assume doesn't apply to us. The warning is intended to show us that just because we're here today, in and among God's people, following Jesus, in our minds, and dwell with the Spirit, all those things, just because that's where we are today, doesn't guarantee we're going to be there five years from now. There is a very real possibility that we could be deceiving ourselves and fall away in the future. Even though we maybe have confidence and assurance that's not the case, we need to acknowledge that that is a real possibility. This warning is given to shake us out of our idleness and complacency. Right? It's in the context of the the scripture that Lance exposited so well last week about how we're supposed to grow up. We're not supposed to stay as spiritual infants and toddlers. God wants us to move past and beyond that. Um, And he's saying kind of, if you don't do that, here's what could happen. You could fall away. In that same article, Piper says it this way. He says, here is the terrifying prospect behind all the warnings of this book. Talking about the book of Hebrews. Not to drift, but to take heed and consider Jesus and to exhort each other in every day and to fear unbelief and carelessness. Why? Is anything really at stake? Answer is yes. The prospect exists that you and I who believe we are chosen and called and justified might slide into a slow process of indifference and hardening and eventually fall away and reject Christ and put him to an open shame. We may actually come to a point where there is no return because we've been forsaken utterly by God. That's what the word impossible means in verse 6. Oh, how it should put you on an urgent pursuit of mercy this morning. And friends, I just have to say this, like, I want us to heed that warning. It's, it's, if I'm being real honest, it's tempting for me with a passage like this to just want to rush to what it doesn't mean, to rush to verse 9 and just kind of let us all off the hook. Oh, but it's fine. We don't need to worry about that. We're here. We're all Christians. But friends, that's, that is not the tone of this text. The tone of this text is like a very clear and imminent warning that should shake us up a little bit and should cause us to want to lean into Jesus and pursue him more so that we don't become one of those people who falls in love with the world and turns away from Jesus. There should be a gravity and a weight to this. I know that a lot of times we come into church on a Sunday morning and often our unvoiced expectation is that we would come in, shake some hands, see someone, kind of be encouraged and leave on a really good note and just kind of walk out really happy. But 
friends, I have to say, like, I, some texts don't really lend itself to that, right? Some texts lend itself to, like, we got to walk out a little, a little worried. I mean, not worried that scared or like walking on eggshells, but having been warned of what could happen if we don't continue to pursue and trust and go after Jesus. So what do we do with this? I mean, that's a question we try to ask after every passage is a matter of application is so what, okay? So there's this possibility he's warning us that it's not them, even though there's there's an assurance that it's not because we are believing, we are trusting, we are pursuing. What do we do with that? I think there's a couple things that texts give us. Number one, to imitate the faith of others. We see that right here at the end of our passage this morning in verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, right? But then he goes on to say that you might imitate the faith of those who are leading to patient endurance. That you would see those people whose faith is leading them to patiently endure and imitate that. Find those people Look at them, watch how they live, and, and, and imitate what they are doing. Learn from them. But secondly, if we zoom out to the entire book, the, the whole message of the book of Hebrews is this idea that look at Jesus. Look how much better he is. If I were to kind of walk through just where we've been to up to this point in the book of Hebrews, here's just a quick summary of what we've seen. Hebrews chapter 1, the author begins this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God used to speak by his prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, by whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. God used to speak to us through the prophets. Now he has given us something way better. Jesus, the God-man, come to live among us that we may see Jesus, and by doing so, we see the very nature of God himself. He moves on in chapter 2 to talk about how because of this, Jesus is so much better than the angels that in the Old Covenant, the angels relayed God's words to man. They were penned on the pages of Scripture. But in the New Testament, God has given us a better mediator, a better, a better person than any angel could ever be, as much as the name he has is more excellent than theirs. And he talks about how this Jesus, he has become like us in every respect, tempted as we are and yet without sin, which is why he makes him a sympathetic high priest and trailblazer on our behalf. He's become one of us. He humbled himself and tasted death for us so we wouldn't have to. He goes on to compare him to Moses and say, Jesus is even way better than Moses, this great prophet and leader of the Old Testament. Jesus is way better than him, just as much as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. He goes on to talk about entering into God's rest in the Sabbath and says that in the Old Testament they had this, they would work really hard for six days and then one day they would stop and rest, and that Jesus is our rest. He is the better Sabbath because, because of what he's done on the cross, we can stop working to try to earn favor with God and just rest knowing that he has done what needed to be done to gain our approval back into a right standing with God the Father. And he says that Jesus is a better high priest, that the high priest of the Old Testament would, would go into the temple Right, This little man-made structure that kind of represented God's presence, but that Jesus has gone before God the Father himself in the true temple of the heavenly courts to intercede on our behalf as our great high priest. And we'll see more 
and more in the book of Hebrews about how much better Jesus is. And friends, the, the recipients of this book originally, that's what they were tempted with, that maybe Moses is better. Maybe we need to go look back to the angels. Maybe these, these laws and these rituals and these ceremonies and these regulations, maybe those are better than this new way of just trusting Jesus and it being that simple. And friends, I could say that while most of us probably don't struggle as much with that directly, what many of us do struggle with is looking back at the world and the decadencies that the world has to offer and thinking maybe that's better. And the message we need to hear time and time again that keeps us from falling in love with the world is that no, Jesus is better. He is so much better than any of those other things. In fact, any of those other things you would hold, your, your aspirations, the, the thing you like to do on the weekend, that hobby that you love, even maybe that person that you love or that dream that you have or that aspiration you have of retirement or what you're going to buy or where you're going to land, what you're going to have. Jesus is better than all of it and all those things are empty and meaningless without him. He is better. And hopefully when we come in here week after week and we sit under God's word, that's what's happening is that we're being reminded of how much better Jesus is than all of the other things that compete for our attention or affection that claim to be the answer to fulfill the needs of our hearts. That Jesus is really what we need and he is better. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to Embrace that, God, I pray that each week and each day as we talk about the things of you, that we would not just be going through cultural motions, but that we would be remembering and understanding and celebrating in how much better Jesus is than anything else that we could set in front of our eyes and set the affections of our hearts upon. And I pray in his name, amen.